and welcome to another episode of Keck CNC's podcast, Global Thinking. Today, I'm joined by James Johnson and Tom Lubbock, Senior Advisors here at Keck CNC, and we're going to unpick how the results of the 2020 US election will impact the polling industry. Ahead of November the 3rd, pollsters predicted that Joe Biden's path to 270 electoral college votes would remain clear. But they were wrong. Although Joe Biden is now president-elect, the polling industry finds itself under scrutiny. Once again, the polls were guilty of underestimating Donald Trump's appeal. As former polling experts for the UK Prime Minister, it's fair to say that James and Tom have a wealth of knowledge about this topic. And so, to kick us off, James, Tom, can you tell us a bit about what the pollsters got wrong when predicting the outcome of the election this time around? Yeah, so there were really two things that that that, that went wrong. The first was, uh, you know, a significant number of pollsters, though not by no means not all of them, uh, showing a really quite substantial lead for Biden uh, nationally in the vote share. Now, some of these weren't wildly off. I mean, you know, the, the projections seem to suggest that Biden will win by around sort of four to five uh, points in, in in the popular vote, um, but some were certainly overemphasizing that. Um, uh, that lead, not so much by exaggerating Biden's vote share, but by uh, under um, underestimating uh, Donald Trump's share of the vote, which obviously ended up being uh, quite a lot higher than anybody thought. And the second thing going on um, was a similar issue to, uh, to, at least on the surface, to 2016, where some of those state polls uh, were also uh, quite far off, um, particularly uh, in places uh, like Wisconsin, um, uh, where you know some pollsters had that really as a very significant double-digit Biden lead, um, ended up uh, being won by a much narrower margin. All of those Rust Belt, Rust Belt states that Biden eventually won actually ran, won by a more narrow margin. So not a complete failure by the pollsters, because obviously Biden did win the election. But in terms of margins, uh, certainly a, a, a significant sort of uh, uh, failing, um, to be frank, by the polling companies. The there were states which were pretty good in terms of the polls, um, and they happened to be the states where Biden just um, snuck ahead of um, of Trump and flipped them from uh, 2016, Arizona and Georgia being the two kind of key examples. Um, the polls were very close there. Arizona, the average was only off by two. Georgia was only off by one, so pretty much spot on. Um, but uh, but but the, then, as James says, in these other states, you know, the, there's no hiding the fact that some of these state polls, particularly say Wisconsin, were absolutely miles off. Yeah, and and why do you think that was? So I understand that you spoke to voters yourselves ahead of polling day. Um, does that mean that you both? I know hindsight is a wonderful thing. Does that mean that you both had a slightly different take on what might happen um, come November third? Yeah, I, that's interesting. I guess there's two questions: is did we did we think something different going in, and then what do we think went wrong with the polls? Um, we, I, I just think back to this one focus group we did um, at Kext with swing voters in Pennsylvania. So we had eight swing voters in front of us, um, some of whom had voted um, Clinton in 2016, and but most of whom had voted for Trump in 2016. And we launched into this conversation about the pandemic and about Trump's response to it and immediately got a very hostile, negative response to Trump um, throughout the group. As the conversation evolved, 
and we moved away from talking about the um, the, the COVID nineteen crisis and Trump's response to it, we rapidly realised that um, in fact, when push came to shove, um, all but one of these Trump voters were sticking with were sticking with Trump um, through even despite this initial very hostile reaction. Um, about the pandemic, and it, it was clear that they um, there was this values connection amongst certainly the small group of voters with Trump, and even one of the Clinton voters who had who had switched over to um, supporting Trump. So um, that gave a kind of early warning sign. But the problem is, in our industry, there is no substitute for fixing these polls, and that's why. Um, that's why the industry has to get its has to improve on 2016 and 2020. Whatever you think about them, it has to do better because there is no substitute. Um, we love to combine these focus groups, these qualitative results with quantitative results, but it's simply impossible to have a firm, um, sure sense of what's going to happen in an election or in anything else for that matter without doing large scale large scale qualitative uh, quantitative work even if you have other work alongside it which t- paints a slightly different picture so i don't think we can claim any um special foresight on that one other than that this um this was an interesting data point and one that now sticks firmly in the mind um in the run up to the election as to what went wrong james do you want do you want to come in on that before i launch into what went wrong yeah no, sorry, sorry to jump in. I mean, I just think, I think, I think we, as you say there, Tom. I think you know we've got to be quite honest with ourselves. I mean, we did that focus group. Uh, it went out on Times Radio, um, and it was very pro-Trump. You know, with these Pennsylvania swing voters. Uh, by the time, as Tom said, that sort of you know conversation got past the sort of surface level reaction, where actually, if they were filling out a poll, those voters probably would have said you know, I'm not voting for Trump, but actually 20 minutes later, once they had a think about it, once they had a discussion of it with people, you know, like and with in, in the same state as them and with the same views, uh, they were actually coming uh, around as much more pro-Trump. Now, you know, I was presenting that on Times Radio at the same time, um, and I was really, you know, hedging that because, you know, the polls were saying, you know, something quite different. Um, and, you know, obviously a focus group is eight people, um, polls are made up of, you know, uh, thousands of pe- people. Um, so, you know, I was naturally cautious about that, whereas I think we should have taken that focus group a lot more seriously. Um, and I think, I'm sure Tom's about to come on to this, but I think what it shows is that value of, you know, not just getting that surface level quick reaction when somebody's filling out a poll on their phone or on their laptop, but actually tr- digging that a-, a lot deeper. So, you know, one of the things that we're thinking about both with, you know, our, our Kex CNC hat on in terms of, well, actually, what are clients looking for, um, you know, more widely outside of politics, as well as with the political hat on, you know, how do we bring together that qualitative and that quantitative um, uh, research to really give the richest picture of what's going on? So looking at what the polls predicted would happen versus just how close it was in some states, it seems like polls tend to underestimate the appeal of the Republican Party. Why do you think that is? Or is it actually that the same errors do creep in when predicting the behaviours of Democrats as well? Yeah, well, I think certainly, uh, you know, we've seen, as Tom says, you know, it's not we're not just seeing a Trump effect here because we're also seeing, you know, Republicans in those House and Senate races 
uh, being understated. Um, I think that there's something, there's there's certainly something, and Tom will go into more detail, will be able to go into more detail than this than me, but I think there's probably something in, in the sample design of some of these polls and the ability to actually reach some of these voters, especially in the US, uh, where voters, you know, much less likely uh, in these Republican-leaning areas to be uh, answering polls um, uh, or to be um, or to be sort of, you know, on those panels in the first place. But as I say, I think there's something about the nature of polling here. Um, you see it in the UK as well with, you know, um, polls about lockdown measures. You know, we consistently see, you know, polling in the UK saying that people are, are very, very pro-restrictions. But when you do a focus group and you get under the surface of that, you actually see that the British public are quite fed up with coronavirus restrictions. But because of, you know, various forms of bias, uh, they tend, they, they still answer supportively in the polls. So I think there's something about the nature of polling here, I think, that has to change. You know, yes, we need to carry on doing these large scale quantitative exercises, but whether in the survey or alongside it, we need to have that qualitative insight there because it often shows us something much more developed and much more real, I think, in terms of reflecting how voters actually think and feel. You know, they don't just go into um, a, uh, you know, into the polling station um, and check a box or fill it out on the screen or, or, or however it's done. You know, they're, they're, they're thinking about this for some days in advance. They're having conversations about it around the dinner table. Um, you know, we need to try and emulate some of that in our polling and research uh, rather than just, you know, bringing it all desk down to a checkbox when somebody's filling out a poll. Yeah, let, let me jump in and talk a bit more about some of the theories that are floating around in the um, polling world about what happened I think you have to start by going back to 2016, because um, despite the fact that the result of the presidential election was different, so we the Democrat won this time, and that was in line with the polls, the errors were very, very much correlated in the same way as they were in 2016. And what that suggests strongly is that the same thing that went wrong in 2016 went wrong in 2020 with polls and that they have not corrected. Um, and in some in some ways that have gone in the opposite direction ever so slightly from 2016. Um, now, I, I think the brief um, history of, of the 2016 era and the received wisdom was that it was down to um, uh, too few uh, white voters who had um, lower levels of education um, in samples. So the samples didn't have the correct proportions of, um, of uh, less than college educated white voters. So um, pollsters between 2016 and 2020 boosted their um, boosted their um, lower educated white um, sample. 2018, the midterm election went quite well for the polling industry, in fact, very well. And so um, coming into 2020, it was thought that this might be the silver bullet that um, it, it did see it, the me the mechanism involved did seem to work quite well. It did seem to explain both the um, both the miss in twenty sixteen and and, and a, you know a solution to it. So things were looking good, but um, clearly there is something else going on that isn't corrected by um, just upping the proportion of of, of less educated um, white voters. And when you look at the errors in the in the state polls. They are in the biggest in these states with with large numbers of less educated white um, white voters. So that does there seems to be something going on there that isn't corrected for just by tweaking education in these polls. But 
It is so early still. We simply, anyone who says they know for certain what happened uh, is is putting too much emphasis on on exit polls and things like that which are not uh not to be relied on i could go on but but i mean that is one interesting theory and it seems like this isn't just a problem that applies to u.s politics what does the result from 2016 mean for the future of the polling industry and i guess more specifically what do you think needs to change in the next four years yeah it's a really interesting one um I think the thing that people don't appreciate in um, in just a kind of dinner party conversation about polling and uh, social media conversations about polling is that there's money at stake. So every single one of these polls that goes into the 538 average, someone has someone has paid for that, whether it's a newspaper like the New York Times, we're doing tons of polling, whether it's a TV station or whether it is a uh, a kind of um, partisan organization someone someone's put real money behind it and they it is very very expensive to do polling well and all the changes all the fixes that are being proposed that, that and we see this at every election all the fixes that are proposed just increase the cost of polling at a time where pressures on them um, Pressures on cost it, for public polling, which is essentially given away for free, it, uh, are, are downward, and, and and that creates a really difficult situation. Um, as James said um, right at the outset of this conversation, the s- samples in in terms of these polls have to be looked at really carefully, especially when you have these very significant minority groups who. Um, black americans and hispanic americans who are very very difficult to reach in a representative way particularly we've seen this time around hispanic it was the one move the one shift that was actually foretold in some of this polling was that um his hispanic americans would be uh more pro-trump this time around than they were in 2016 um but still we don't think the samples probably had the right um, kinds of Hispanic Americans. Um, the temptation in a thousand sample poll is to treat the 160 Hispanics who ought to be in that sample as a homogenous block. But as anyone who studies American politics knows, you know, they're not they're massively heterogeneous in terms of um, voting behavior, values and, and, and such like. And so it's really expensive. It's really hard to get a really granular sample of hispanics in your poll and you know so there's that there's such a really difficult trade-off here that if, if if you want to do better polling if the industry wants to improve someone's got to put the money up to do it and um and uh this is at a time as i say when when um there isn't vast amounts of money going into this public polling i guess as well uh, i think the question maybe for us at kexi and c is you know what does this wider debate around what went wrong or what need to change what needs to change what does that mean for our clients um so i guess my real question is why should our clients continue to think of polling as a useful part of communications campaigns or or you know do the problems with the system that you you've just spoken 
to, um, you know, mean that it's maybe time to reevaluate uh, the, the continued relevance of polling at, on this scale? I'm hoping the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it certainly is. But, but I think at the same time, you know, you've got to have, you know, people who are clear eyed about about the challenges that faces polling at the moment. Um, you know, there is a temptation uh, you know, among some in the industry to sort of say, well, you know, there are extraneous reasons for this and, uh, you know, it was a one-off event and, you know, we've got to crack on as before. Actually, I think, you know, being clear-eyed about these challenges and then sort of adapting methodologies around that is really the key. So, you know, like I was saying about that mix between qual and quant, you know, we're not, I don't think, you know, we'd ever say to clients, you know, just use this one this one measure, this will give you everything. You know, we're saying, you know, actually the ideal mix is to do it, is to do a mix of this and to really be able to identify the drivers. I also think there's a slight there's a slight difference between um, you know, the sort of political polling um that we're discussing and some of those uh more corporate research projects. I mean, as Tom alluded to there, you know, there is this sort of horse race in the US um to, you know, get into the 538 polling average, to, you know, get out the top line numbers you know, to make a headline, um, you know, everybody in the US polling industry, um, you know, including ourselves is guilty of that, right? Because, you know, you want to try and call the, th- the thing that really matters, you know, the, the top line figure. Actually, though, you, you know, most often in, in sort of corporate um, communication campaigns, you're actually really looking for sort of uncovering that hidden insight, which nobody else has sort of seen, and that isn't being picked up in normal conversations amongst networks or stakeholders. And, you know, that's where that deeper dive work really, really comes through and, you know, allow it, being able to spend a bit more time really getting to the bottom of what a specific audience thinks. Going back to Tom's point there, you know, actually, you're not really often looking for the top line number. You're looking to dig into the audiences that really matter uh, to that particular uh, client or indeed to, you know, to identify the drivers that really matter for the audience that that client is interested in. So I think, you know, that deep dive, that, you know, um, uh, sort of deep analysis side, still very relevant. Um, You know, yes, polling is an imperfect science, but it's also one of the few ways of reaching these people and understanding how they think and feel. So I think, yes, there are challenges. Yes, those need to be addressed. But as part of a sort of multidisciplinary, you know, clear-eyed approach that uses polling, but also looks at focus groups, one-to-one interviews, digital insight and analysis, uh, you know, then, then there is still a lot of value there. Um, that can really tell clients about the audiences that really matter to them. Great. Well, thank you, James. Thank you, Tom. It's been um, fantastic to have you on today. And I guess uh, we'll just have to wait and see how things pan out um, in 2024. If you want to listen to more episodes of this podcast, Global Thinking, then please do visit our website, www.kexcnc.com. Otherwise, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.